learning as we do this. So, you know, this morning I was teaching in Song of Solomon in the Sunday school class, which no one wants to teach, and now I'm teaching Ecclesiastes. So if you guys make it through today, you, you've done well, okay? So, but again, this is an important and interesting book that actually sounds very modern, maybe even kind of postmodern to us as we look at this. Questions the meaning of life, kind of the futility of things that we see around us, our human existence, the questions we kind of all ask ourselves, like, why are we here, right? What's the point of what I'm doing in life right now or ever done? What does it seem like everything just goes on and on with no end? And, and what can I do that actually makes a difference in this life? What's valuable? Even at one point, you know, Solomon in Ecclesiastes 4, 2, and 3, it says, maybe it would be better for humans if we were just actually never born at all. <laughs> this is how deep his questioning gets. And so it's a crazy book, sometimes a little misunderstood, but I want you to see that it's a timely word for us as Christians living in this world that we live in. It's got a lot of good things to say to us and things for us to wrestle with. So let me ask you, have you ever just come to this point in your life when you go, is this it? Right? Is this all there is to it? Like, maybe that's where you are this morning. <laughs> is this all there is to life? You know, growing up, life is full of excitement. Like you guys over here in the front row, like you guys are pretty excited about life. Things are pretty pretty cool, right? And in fact, Solomon's going to tell you as young people, man, embrace all the excitement. It's good, right? But for the rest of us, <laughs> we're questioning the meaning of life. And there's all these great experiences like the first time you get to drive a car, right? Your first job and your first paycheck. Mine was at Subway where I made four twenty-five an hour, praise God. Buying your first car, that first romantic relationship you have, right? First promotion, first house. I was at an event last night downtown. I was overhearing these two young guys talking, and the one guy was saying to the other, man, you can't believe what it's like once you're 21. I mean, just everything changes. It's just so awesome. And I want to turn and say, well, you can't believe what it's like when you're 44. <laughs> everything changes, and maybe it's not so awesome anymore. And so maybe you love that first college experience, right? One of some of the best times of my life. Getting that career you've always dreamed about, getting married, having kids, making money. But usually there comes that point, and for some of us, many points in life, where we lay in bed and, at night and just ask ourselves, like, what am I doing? Like, what is this all about? What is, what's really lasting? What's worth pursuing? I was talking to somebody before the service, and they said, you know, age kind of helps with this, right? Begin to see the older you get, the things that are most important. And so Solomon is wrestling with this. This point came for me in my 20s, I think, where I had accomplished things. I had the career I wanted, graduated college. I'm working construction full-time for Oakland and um, <clears throat> been married for a few years and building commercial buildings, particularly the IHC hospital. And I kind of just lay in bed at night and go, is this all I'm going to do for the next 40 years? Like, is this it? Is it? I mean, I have all these things, but I'm, something's missing, right? 
And I, as I began to wrestle with this, I believe it was part of God's, what God was doing to move me into a place of ministry. But all of us begin to question these things in life. And, and these are the questions that Solomon is wrestling with in Ecclesiastes. And so let's talk about this book a little bit. Just give a little introductory information. So who's writing this book? You've heard me say Solomon, right? Ecclesiastes 1.1 says, The words of a preacher, of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. This is traditionally thought to be written by Solomon. Could be another king down the line, and yet when we see the project that this guy is undertaking, it has to be somebody who's fantastically wealthy, has access to all things, right, and has great wisdom. We're going to see that. And so the name of the preacher, he calls himself Koalet, Kohelet, which basically means the one who gathers together, or the preacher, based on the word kahal in the Hebrew, which translates uh, in Greek into ecclesia, right? We know this word for the church. And so he is the leader of this gathering, and he, you know, so if I say Solomon or the preacher or Kohelet, I'm talking about the same person. Sometimes I just run these things through my, through my head. So writer of the book. And really there's two voices in the book. There's somebody presenting to us what the preacher said and there's what the preacher said. So kind of between the first and third person, I and he. He said this, here's what I say. Uh, but they don't have to be different people. It could be Solomon just showing us um, everything about his experiences. And so this preacher has something to say to us about life. And just like Solomon did with the Proverbs, if you look at that, he wrote that book to his sons so they would have wisdom about life, where to go, how to follow God, how to stay out of trouble. Solomon similarly writes this book to his sons so that they would learn on the front side how to live. And by extension, all of us that would listen Again, this is considered wisdom literature in the Bible, that God wants us to learn the right ways to live, what it's like to live with Him, to base our life on Him. Putting God as the foundation of our life, the Bible claims that this is the pathway to wise and good living. In fact, Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Okay, so setting God at the center of our life. So as we get into this book, let's be those that are willing to listen to what Solomon says. We want to be the wise ones that find good life and good life with God and not despise the wisdom that he has. Okay, this is the central question of the book. What is it that makes life meaningful? Okay, ever thought about this in your own life? We all learn things from our parents that, that we think are meaningful, that make life great. Learn things from our culture that they say things are great. Maybe for you, you think it's skiing every day. Can I get an amen? Is it traveling? Is it kids and family? Is it our professions? What makes life great? What makes it meaningful? Is it the money? Is it having success? Is it hanging out with friends? Is it building miniatures? <laughs> I say that because I just get annoyed by watching the videos and then doing all these little things. But some people find meaning. And so Solomon's going to take us on a journey to find what makes life meaningful. 
In fact, this is basically a poetic research paper on all the things of the world to say and show us what is meaningful. So Solomon is going to explore work. Is work meaningful? Is pleasure meaningful? Is relationships and sex, are they meaningful? Is even pursuing wisdom, is that even a meaningful thing to do or should I just remain a fool? And finally, Solomon will wrestle with the fact that at the end of the day, whatever we do, whatever we pursue, it seems to be kind of futile because we're all going to die. And so he works at what is lasting and meaningful with this knowledge of impending death. And so if we are wise, we will take Solomon's project and let it speak to us without having to conduct this experiment on our own. Listen, kids and young people, Solomon's speaking to you, right? He's saying, look, I've experienced it all. Take my words for it. I've found what's meaningful. You don't have to do this experiment, okay? Because what you'll find is the same conclusion, and yet sometimes as we do these things, it can lead us off into paths we can never get off of. So this morning, let's dive into Solomon's project and learn about true meaning. We're going to look at it in two parts. First, verses 1 through 11, he looks at what he calls wisdom under the sun. So when we read this passage, it is what is our normal human perspective under the sun, what we experience in this life, right? And then he's going to teach us about wisdom above the sun. And then secondly, we'll look at Solomon's project to find true wisdom and meaning in life. So let's look at wisdom under the sun. Uh, Ecclesiastes verse 1 and 2, it says this, The words of the preacher, Kohelet, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is the opening of his poem. It's an important Hebrew word here for vanity called hevel. And this is hard, it's a hard word to get at the right meaning. In fact, if you have different translations of your Bible, you might see meaningless or breath or futile or vapor, right? All these things are trying to get at what hevel means. It's kind of this this futile passing nature of life. Everything is futile. Everything is passing away, as he is describing. It gets at the fleeting nature of life that it's all short and it will end soon. You know, this week, Facebook always reminds us of the fleeting nature of life, right? I had kid, pictures of my kids pop up from 10 years ago, and you go, holy cow, what happened? Right? How did we get here? And again, this opening poem by the preacher is giving us wisdom from a human perspective, all things under the sun, all things that we experience. So this phrase, under the sun, is meant to encapsulate our experience as humans. But again, he's going to work towards a worldview that's greater than that, above the sun, right? We just proclaim God in Psalm 8 about how majestic he is and how high and above he is. That's the knowledge we want to get to. And Solomon's going to take us there. So let's read Ecclesiastes 1, um, 1 through 11. This again, this is wisdom under the sun, his opening poem. Here's what the preacher says. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down, 
hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind. And on its circuit, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Okay, this is kind of a depressing view of life, right? It's all kind of useless. And this is what we feel. This is life under the sun. We don't know where we're going. It seems to swirl around and then we're done. This is what he's getting at. He tells us a couple things in this poem. I think the first one is this, that the permanency of nature compared to our fleeting lives should call us to want more, right? God is saying something to us here. I mean, we live in a beautiful city, right? And this time of year, it's gorgeous. Mountains are starting to turn green. You got snow on the mountains still. The sun's coming out. And I love playing in these mountains. Like, I love it. In fact, I, I, I would like to climb and hike and experience every square inch of these Wasatch Mountains. And I've set myself to do that. I used to want to climb every climbing route in the Wasatch Mountains. And you know what I found out? There's no way I'm going to get to them all. It's impossible. In fact, this is my own little theory, but I think heaven is going to be a little bit like this, that we have all this great new creation from God, and you have all eternity to explore every square inch forever and ever and ever and know it all, right? But as we look at these things, it causes us to want more, right? We go, that's permanent and I'm fleeting. God, there's got to be more. Crazy to think that these mountains were here before I got here and before any of us came, and they're going to be here after we leave, right? Ecclesiastes 1.4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. This plays into our modern, our FOMO, right? Our fear of missing out. And you know what Ecclesiastes says? You're going to miss out, Right? You're going to be here for a little while, and then you're going to miss out because it's going to keep going without you. And further, we can see the cyclical nature of, of nature seems to be never-ending. Winter comes, winter goes, right? Snow comes, it melts, it goes into the salt lake, it evaporates, goes back on the mountain and goes out. It just goes on and on and on. It causes us to want more. There's got to be more. But we know that even we can add very little to the world and what it's doing. That one day we'll be gone. You can think about this even like when a coworker leaves your office and everybody's like, oh, you've been so great and we're going to miss you so much. And two weeks later, nobody cares. <laughs> right? We move on. It goes on and on and on. We want more. In fact, Romans 1 talks about how nature tells us everything about God. It elicits in us a knowledge that there's something more. We want something more. In fact, Solomon's going to say in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. 
right? That's what that is. Basic human understanding that there's more. The permanence of the earth says that there is more. When we feel this angst over the futility and shortness of life, we are experiencing what everybody else in this room feels. This is a common feeling to man. We're created to live in union with God, to enjoy His creation forever, and yet in the garden we chose to rebel against Him. Adam and Eve sinned against God. They were kicked out of the garden. In Genesis 3, they were given the sentence of sin and death, right? And this disease is passed down from every one of us that have ever lived, and it cuts short what God meant for us. And the mountains remind us of that. Romans 8.20 says, Even creation was subjected to futility. Again, this is, the, this is the Greek word equivalent to the Hebrew hevel. Futility. Right? God submitted everything to futility. It feels like it doesn't matter because of our sin. And yet, Romans 8.21 says this, God subjected creation and all of us to futility because of God who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, see, the futile nature of our world and our lives is meant to point us back to the fact that we need God. We need something more permanent. So if you feel the sinking feeling in your soul about the vanity of life, that you don't know what you're doing, God is getting your attention. He's saying, look up. Kind of reminds me of that movie, Don't Look Up, in uh, Netflix. Right? Everybody's saying, don't look up, don't look up. That's wisdom under the sun. But God's saying, turn your eyes up. There's more to this thing. In fact, Jeremiah 29, 13 through 14 says, if we will seek God with our hearts you will find Him, right? If you draw near to Him, He will draw near to you. There's more out there. And nature reminds us of this. As the New Testament reminders, real life begins with Jesus, right? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. You want to find life? Solomon's going to show us. It comes through God, and it comes through His Son, in Jesus. Now, we also learn from Solomon in this opening poem that there's nothing new in life. This is kind of a startling thing when we think about it. Ecclesiastes 1, 9 and 10, right? There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before. Now, obviously, what he's not saying is that, I mean, there are new technologies and there are new things that we get to do. I just got a new bike the other day, right? This is the thing that didn't exist before, an e-bike, right? But the disciples didn't walk around with iPhones and putting Jesus' latest miracle on Instagram. Although that, I think it'd be a good addition to The Chosen. It'd be kind of funny, like, dude, post that, man. Hashtag hanging with Jesus. But what Solomon is getting at is that in our lives, There won't be any new attitudes that we experience in humanity. There won't be any new problems that we're working at. They're the same old problems, right? There won't be any new joys or successes. They're all the same. Been there, done that. 
all of the things we experience are common to man from the beginning of time till the end. There's nothing new. People 2,000 years ago wanted to eat just like us, right? They tried to provide for their families. They tried to do things that were an enjoyable job. They wrestled with the same sin tendencies that you do. They tried to experience happiness and joy. They tried to avoid pain and suffering. And they tried to make this world a place of joy, like, like just like we do. It's all the same. And the great thing about this, as we just sung this morning, is that this same God was their God is our God. And the same word that he gave them so many years ago is for us. In fact, that's what, part of what we see when there is nothing new because there is one God who has created all things to be one way and truth is still truth and the answers are still the same. This is good. This also brings us comfort, comfort right? It means the things that you're experiencing in life, you're not the only one. All of us, all of us experience those very same things. You're not alone. Many experience the same things you do, and that means it's okay to bring them up. We often think we can't bring things up. It's always funny in a small group where people start like just carefully sharing, I'm kind of dealing with this thing, and I'm kind of embarrassed about it, and everybody goes, oh yeah, that's my everyday man. Like, I'm dealing with that too. There's nothing new, right? The answer to the problems is still the same in relationship with God. Thirdly, Solomon points out to us that from uh, kind of from this under the sun wisdom that, look, I see that we're temporary, right? Have you ever been to a graveyard? You ever just walked around in a graveyard? I mean, this isn't the funnest thing to do. I used to have friends that would go play chess on gravestones. I always thought that was kind of funny. Um, but when you walk around, you see stones with people's names and dates, right? And they were somebody, had a family and a job, and they contributed to society, maybe even big ways, but I don't know who they were, right? They're forgotten. Don't know anything about them. Then there's those stones that don't even have names you can read anymore. And then there's people that never even had a stone, right? Millions of people that have been on this earth that no one knows their name, no one knows where they lived, no one knows what they did. And Solomon is wrestling with this fact that this is where we're all going. That even the most famous people in history, we actually know very little about them and, and most of their things are forgotten, their personality, their family, it's all gone. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 1.11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those that come after. This is a startling reality of life. You will be forgotten, right, in this world under the sun. In fact, there's been like six pastors of this church. Can anybody name them all other than Buck? No one knows, right? And one day I'll be a name in that list. And no one will know who I am. Now, somebody reminded me this morning that their favorite football team lost really poorly last year. They could have a mascot that's called the Frog, and they have a purple jersey, maybe from Texas Christian University. 
and they lost spectacularly. He said, that will be remembered for quite some time. But then again, it will pass, right? All right. James 4.14 says this, Our lives are but a mist that appears for a little time, and then it vanishes. We're temporary. No one remembers us or what we did. Even your gravestone will fade. But here's the truth of the gospel. The Bible witnesses to the fact that there is a God who remembers. Okay, I want you to think about this. Just as God, it says, God remembered Noah and the ark as he was going through the floodwaters of his judgment and that God then brought him through the flood to a place of salvation, God remembered him. God remembers his people. God remembered Jesus, so like we celebrated last week, laid him in the grave. And Psalm 16.10 says that God did not abandon Christ's soul to Sheol, that's the place of the dead, or let his Holy One see corruption. God remembered him and brought him out of the grave. And the hope of those that have placed our lives in Christ is that though we die, there is a God who has said he will be faithful to remember us and raise us up on the last day. You are not forgotten in Jesus. Not only does God remember us, but he says, I will remember everything that was done on this earth. From our perspective under the sun, we go, nothing is remembered, nothing is mattered, and yet God says, I do. I remembered everything that was done. I will bring justice to all situations, and one day all of us will stand before God in judgment, as it says, and He will remember everything we did, and we will give an account. Some will receive punishment and others rewards. God remembers. And so as we think life is meaningless, the fact that there's a God that remembers means there might be some meaning to what we do. In fact, Matthew 10, 32 and 33 says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. This is Jesus speaking. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny my father, you before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus remembers and we're going to begin to see a spark of meaning to our life. But this is our experience of life under the sun. Sometimes it can feel futile, meaningless. And then let's look at Solomon's project now to sort through all these things. So again, he's given us wisdom under the sun. This is what it feels like. This is the way we think. I think we can all relate to those things. And this is what he's going to do about it, okay? Look at verse 12. It says, I, the preacher, Kohelet, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. And it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity in a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, it's just going to be the way it is. And I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this was also a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. 
This is a great passage. Basically, he's giving you the thesis statement. His, this is what he's doing for his research project. He's saying, look it, I'm going out there with my heart to try to search out wisdom under heaven. In other words, I want to understand everything man does and why he does it. Okay? Ecclesiastes 1.17, I've applied my heart to know wisdom and then know madness and folly. I want to know it all. I want to be the wise guy and I want to be the guy who parties and just acts a fool. I want to see what it's all like. This is a crazy project, right? Might be kind of fun for a while, but it's also kind of a rich guy project. You got to have a lot of resources to do this. Me and my wife always laugh. We watch PBS, Don't Hold That Against Us. And uh, the guy who owns Viking Cruises always comes on there. His name is Torsten. And Torsten always says, the only limited thing in life is time. And I go, and money for the rest of us, Torsten, right? He's like, go travel and learn about the world. That's what Solomon's saying. I go, yeah, I don't got the time or the money, right? So this is a rich guy project, but Solomon is doing it for us. And we have to be careful. I think there's a caution here because... If we set ourselves to do this, there's all sorts of sin that we can get trapped in. And so let's take Solomon's words. Let's not have to do the project. Let's listen to what Solomon did. I also think we see here that, look, the Bible is not afraid to ask hard questions about truth. Okay? About what's right and wrong. Because God is confident that if you try all these things, (laughs) you're going to see He's actually better. That He is better. Let's not be scared to ask God our questions or try out His truth to try to work out why do we live this way? Why is my heart given to these things? Why does this seem valuable or meaningless? Let's do the work of finding out what's true in life. Right? Our, our, our culture is good about asking questions and throwing up a lot of questions about why things may or not, may not be true, but they don't actually seek out the answer. And Solomon's a good example to us. Seek out the answer. Find the answer. Walk it out with God. But it does come with a warning. We can be carried away by the things of the world. 1 Kings 1.1 1, 1 and 3.4 talks about it. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, <laughs> and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away from other, to other gods, and his heart was not true to follow the Lord. As he did this project, he got carried away, and he got taken away from what really matters. And I've seen friends dig in deep into philosophy of the world, and they think they're trying to find truth, and ultimately they find themselves trapped in things that aren't true. But on the flip side, it's a Christian attitude to work out what we believe. Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's be Christian people that work at our salvation. Not, not we have to work to be saved. God saved us in his grace. But as we begin to learn what is truth and error, let's do the hard work of asking God questions. Let's wrestle down our heart with God and let's hear what he has to say so that we can walk with him. But even this can feel like a useless project given the scope of our lives. Ecclesiastes 1.17, I applied my heart to know wisdom 
and to know madness and folly. I love that. I perceive that this also was a striving after the wind. In other words, even as I did this and was trying to figure it all out, I realized I'm grasping at nothing. He says, for in much wisdom, in verse 18, is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. We were sitting at the dinner table the other night, and I was critiquing something, probably not in the best heart attitude. And one of my sons looked at me and said, Dad, you know, your mind just kind of works a little different than everybody else's. He's like, I think you've read too many books. I said, I agree with you. And thanks for the compliment, by the way. Right? But as we learn more, it does, it brings pain into our life. And this is part of the reason why God says, just come to me with childlike faith and believe what I've said to you. Right? You can seek it out and you're going to find that I'm true. But on the flip side, if you'll just come, you can avoid yourself a lot of pain and suffering. Verse one thirteen says, it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, trying to figure things out, trying to figure God out. But I want you to see that this is part of the consequence of our sin, that we estranged ourselves from God, and now we've got to figure out who he is again. And we have to search him out. So Solomon is working on quite this grand project in Ecclesiastes, and we get to look in. Now, I want to say just a few things about Solomon as we kind of come to a close here. You know, when you look at Solomon's life, 1 Kings 3 so it tells us that Solomon loved the Lord. He walked so deeply with him. In fact, when, when, when he was young, he, God came to him and said, Solomon, make any request of me. And he said, you know what, God? In 1 Kings 3.9, can you give your servant their understanding mind to govern the people that I might know good from evil? And he's like, for who can govern these people? He's a young guy, probably a teenager, trying to lead Israel. And he says, God, I just need wisdom. And God said, here you go, right? 1 Kings 3.12 and 13, I'll give you wisdom and a discerning mind. And because you didn't ask for riches and stuff, I'm going to give you all that too. Here's everything, Solomon. Enjoy it all. No other king will compare to you. And I love this. First Kings 10 talks about how the queen of Sheba, who was probably from somewhere around Ethiopia, had heard of his fame and his wisdom, and she comes to see him, and she's got all these hard questions. And First Kings 10, 3 says that she asked the hard questions, and there was nothing he couldn't answer. Nothing. And verse 1 Kings 10, 4 and 5 says this, When the queen of Sheba had seen all of the wisdom of Solomon, the house he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, their cupbearers, the burnt offerings that he offered at God's house, that there was no breath in her. She was verklempt, if you remember that word from a long time ago. She was stunned at Solomon. Stunned at who he was, and yet Solomon is telling us, I had all this, and it felt futile and meaningless. We ought to listen to that guy. All my learning, all my wisdom, all the pleasures of being king, all my accomplishments, all the joys and the sorrows I've had, meaningless. And so we come back to where we started this morning, and band, you can come on up, and prayer team, you can... Um, come on up as well. 
Come back to our question. And we're going to look at this over the next 10 weeks here. What makes life meaningful? What makes the moments of life enjoyable? What makes the things we do in life important and lasting in the face of death that is certain and soon to come? And maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're just in life under the sun. That's where you're at. None of life makes sense. Maybe you've been looking for God over the last couple of years. We've had many that have been in that place. You're no longer finding joy in life. The things of the world are scary and anxiety bringing. You've seemingly lost purpose. It all feels meaningless and futile. You're confused about what it's all about. You're not even sure why you're here. And God says, as He's going to show us, you were created for so much more than you're experiencing right now. In fact, Solomon's going to tell us it's not meaningless. God created you to be in a relationship with Him, to walk with Him throughout this life, to experience the joys and turn praises back to God, to experience the sufferings and to let God and cry on God's shoulder, to walk with God in all of life. In fact, He created you uniquely and for a special purpose in His kingdom, for special things that He wants to do through you that only you can do. And because He loves you deeply. In fact, He's crazy about you. And when we bring Him into our world, suddenly it's not meaningless anymore. In fact, we were reading this morning in our Sunday school class out of Colossians uh, two, two or three, seventeen, and it talks about let's do everything to the glory of God, right? And when you do that, life isn't meaningless. And we're going to see that over and over. And so, if you've never made Jesus Lord, life is feeling meaningless. The answer comes in a relationship with God. And so, I want to invite you to come to Him, make Him Lord, let Him forgive you of your sins. Let Him set you on a pathway to life today and forevermore. And so if you want to talk about what it means to be a Christian, you come talk with our prayer team who's around the room. Come talk with me. You can confess Him quietly in your seat, but let us know that you did so that we can help you begin to walk with Him. Now some of us, we're in a place where we've been walking with God, but maybe it has grown more futile. <laughs> we've kind of walked away from Him in some ways. So I'd ask you, if that's you, this is a time where we can confess to Him where we've walked away from Him. We've gotten caught up in the things of the world. It's made life seem meaningless. You can confess those things to Him and begin walking with Him again. See, all of us have to come to a place in life where we have real-life transformation, where God trans transforms us. He gets us out from under the sun and takes us over the sun. He shows us who He is, begin living life in light of who He is. John 10.10 10 says, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That means there's good meaning in life. There are things that are worth it. And it begins with God. The meaning of life is found in making Jesus our Lord and life begins to take on new meaning and significance. And so this morning we're going to sing a song of response. I'd encourage you to respond to God, to pray to Him, to let Him meet you right where He is, right where you are. 
Let's respond to him this morning, and then we're going to do something really cool. We're going to send out some missionaries today. And so we'll, uh, we'll do that in just a moment. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your goodness to us, the ways that you love us. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you even wrestle with all of our questions about life. God, thank you that the same God that has been faithful to walk with us, to take us out of our brokenness, and point us to yourself. God, may we look to you and make you the foundation of our life so that we can hold on to what is truly meaningful and lasting forevermore. Father, may we receive life from Christ this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.